Welcome to the Learn Stage Lighting Podcast. This is the show where newcomers and professionals alike come to learn more about stage lighting. And now your host, David Henry. Hey everybody, and welcome back to this week's show. I'm David, and uh, we're going to answer your questions today. So I'm really excited. Um, I was just looking over actually last week's episode, just giving it a quick listen and look at the show notes and uh, just thinking about our Patreon. So if you're not familiar with it, our Patreon just started um, at the start of the month here. And uh, my purpose for it is to pay for basically to pay to, to be able to fund the production of this podcast and also the uh, production of the YouTube videos that I do. Because as, you know, for the, the quick version of of the background is that, you know, in the past, um, I've done this all for free, basically based off of Learn Stage Lighting Labs, but it continues to grow, it continues to get more popular, and both with the podcast and with YouTube, I'm trying and have tried and will try um, doing some, some higher quality, more involved videos and podcasts that take me more time to produce, and you know, time is at the end of the day money, right? I've got to pay my bills. I got to feed my kids. Um, and so with that said, I've launched this Patreon to help do that so that even if you're somebody who says, Hey, I like the free stuff David puts out or in stage lighting labs isn't for me or it's too expensive or whatever, but I want to support what learn stage lighting is doing. Then Patreon is a way that you can be a patron of the arts and help with that. And so there's some great stuff there. Um, I'll send you possibly a sticker I'll, I'll mention you at the end of the show, like I'm going to do today. Um, I'm going to, you know, and there's other options as well. There's some, some Patreon-specific info that I've put out. I've put a couple videos out just to Patreon to uh, help you improve your lighting for, for anybody who's a patron. Um, those go there. And so I um, really want to just encourage you to support the show through Patreon. Um, as I mentioned before, this I went down in June to two episodes of the podcast a month, just kind of as a break as I figured this Patreon thing out. And it's it's been a good thing. Um, and now that we're in July, what I want to do is basically um, I want to go ahead and make sure that I am uh, that I'm that I'm getting enough from Patreon to be able to fund this thing. So starting in August, um, off that rabbit trail, um, I'm going to set a goal in Patreon and I'll set it after I record this for um, basically when $150 a month is pledged um, at a minimum, I'll do four podcasts a month again. And so we got to get to that goal or else I'm only going to do two podcasts a month. And so I'd really appreciate you there. Like Taz is our Patreon um, patron right now. And I want to get more people in there. I think it's a great way to do things and just a great way to have you guys be able to support what I'm doing and help me to grow this thing um, without having to become a full word stage lighting labs member. So let's uh, today we're going to take your questions. Okay. So, you know, how I do this basically is um, I take the questions that come in via my contact form at learnstagelighting.com slash contact. You'll hear one today, even that's by voice. So you can come into that contact form. You can do it by voice or uh, just type out your question. And then I answer them here on the show. It's, we've got a bunch of questions today. Hopefully I can get through them all and I'm really excited to answer. them. So let's, let's get through the fluff and get to this. So Francisco writes in and he says, one question about starting to create lighting in a theater. Um, he says, during the next month, I am 
able to create the lighting of a theater play, and I have um, he's got the text. Obviously, um, Francisco's not a native English speaker like I am, so I'm kind of um, you know um, rephrasing what he's saying. So, um, I think that the idea is of uh, angles and projectors. I assume he's talking about lights here will come when the rehearsals start, but they're asking me now if I have ideas about the lighting before we start. Any tips for how to create a light scene with just the text and without the physical um, set, without the representation? Yeah, absolutely, Francisco. I actually just recently finished a uh, kind of an intro to theater lighting um, setup within Learn Stage Lighting Labs. And so I, I've been thinking through this fresh, through the, you know, through theater shows that I've done before. Um, you know, I, I've really been thinking about, okay, what's the best way to do this? And with my experience, the best way to do this is to kind of take a few passes at the script. And the first pass, when you read the script, the text, which you already have, is to go ahead and just start charting out and looking for anything where the script mentions lighting or, or where it seems to you like lighting or, or to the director, like lighting would make sense to add there. Whether it's a time of day um, note in the script or maybe it's, um, you know, it says something about a light turning on, about the stage getting brighter or darker. Um, and also, at the same time, you want to be looking at the different scenes that you know are going to happen on the stage, right? So you've got certain things that are going to happen on the stage. You know that there's, you know, this set on this side, this other set on that side, and, and you've got different zones of the stage that you need to light. And so even before you get to working with lights or really plotting out specifics, what I would do, Francisco, is I would start to take notes about the different areas on the stage and different parts in the script that those areas of the stage are, are going to call from different things with the lighting. Then after you, you get that charted out, you can really start to think about, okay, you know, what lights do I use and where do they come from? And of course, then there's uh, there's lots of resources on LearnStageLighting.com. If you click over to like theater lighting um, under topics on the main bar, you'll be able to uh, to see some of that info. And that's, that's super helpful stuff. So um, that should be helpful to you. I hope it is. And, um, you know, yeah. Um, I, I wish you the best luck, certainly, on your first show. Uh, Lionel wrote in and said, um, I have a question. I am the lighting designer for a band, and I work with DMXs in small to medium venues, but my question is this. Can I work and use my DMXs show in a big show like a festival? Um, how can I work with it? I know DMXs is only one universe, if I get to the show and I find they have more universes, can I move the thing around and make it work with what I have? All right, so so Lionel, um, unfortunately, and I'm probably messing up your name, and I completely apologize for that. Uh, unfortunately, there's there's not a lot you can do when you get over one universe in DMXs. I would say if if you're getting to that level where um, you're doing shows that are multiple universes with your band and you're actually sitting there and, and running the lights for the band, or, or maybe you do it from stage, doesn't matter. Um, you're probably going to want to look at a more involved option. You know, something that's a little bit more professional level, whether you go kind of mid range with something like the, the light shark or NTX D pro, 
or you go full on professional with something like Onyx that I recommend. And uh, the reason why you might want to look at something, especially like Onyx, is that um, it's really going to allow you to be able to bring in somebody else's rig um, quite simply. It's it's going to allow you to uh, bring in that rig, work with it, and uh, and quickly get it up to speed. And and part of part of a professional lighting console is a tool called cloning, um, which is really powerful. And it's something that you'll find in Onyx where you can take the lights that a venue or a small festival has or a large festival and you can take the lights you've already programmed and you can tell the console, hey, take the information that I've programmed to these lights, you know, my, my lights, and clone or copy it to these new lights as best you can. And then the console will go in and do that and you'll be able to right away get, you know, a, a good bit of a show running without... Um, a whole ton of work and, and not a lot of updating from that point on. So that's my recommendation there. Um, unfortunately, DMX, is, it, as you get to bigger shows, really isn't going to do you anything. That's not its cup of tea. It's it's designed to be simple and it does a great job at that. Um, but when it get, when you get past it, you know, when you get beyond um, its abilities, then, then you really got to move to something else. All right. So our next question is from Eric. He says, I've been following you for a while and appreciate my platform as it allows for all price levels. Uh, since my band can't afford a lighting tech, we've decided to go the route and time code everything um, and used a VST, the VST plugin for DMXs in Ableton. We just purchased a Chinese LED curtain for a backdrop, and we'd like to include it in the Ableton process. Do I have any suggestions for making this happen? Well, Eric, of course I do. Now, I'm just checking here, Eric, because you mentioned um, things at different price range, and so... If you happen to be a Learn Stage Lighting Labs member, I'll I'll reach out to you after this and make sure that we get um get with you and get go deep with this in the forums. Um, it doesn't look like you are from your email here, but if you are, jump in the forums and, and certainly ask. But regardless, um, and so maybe you mean all price levels as like different levels of of people doing lighting, you know, small stuff, medium stuff, large stuff. Um, so. Um, obviously, you're on the right track, you know, using DMXs and the VST plugin. The question with your LED curtain is, how do you send information to that LED curtain? Okay, what kind of uh, control is it looking for? So that's really your first question is, is it looking for a networked DMX signal such as ArtNet or SACN? which is known as E1.31 um, for SACN, um, or ARTNET is usually just called ARTNET, or is it looking for an actual video signal? And if it's looking for an actual video signal, then you're going to see um, you know, a video connector on it. Like a, You'll have a processor with an HDMI or, or something like that. Um, it's likely, being that it's an LED curtain, like I just Googled it and went to LED-cloth.com, um, and see a bunch of cheap LED curtains on here. And um, and these guys are all going to be a networked DMX, right? Uh, now, they're all going to control, have some kind of um, controller with them, but at the end of the day, they're probably going to get networked DMX. So the question is this. Um, what is the control like? So some of these things, as I mentioned, they're going to include a controller. And that controller is going to allow you to trigger different video clips maybe that you can load on it 
via a couple DMX channels. And so that's one way to control it, um, to just plug that in via regular DMX, um, patch it, patch those channels with the the fixture editor, uh, fixtures.dmxs.com, and then get control that way. Another option that may happen is you may be able to send um, Artnet or SACN signal, as I mentioned. If you can send that kind of information, then you're able to go ahead and um, you're able to go ahead then and uh, use a program like NTEX Elm or another media server that will al- allow you to play video basically with just a few DMX channels. Like Elm can do it with like eight or 15 channels, I think. Um, those numbers are approximate, but about that. And you're able to select the different clips, play the videos, and map uh, what the LEDs look like. And then it'll send out that network DMX signal. Um, You're not going to be able to control it direct from DMXs because each individual pixel or each LED that can be a different color takes three channels of DMX. And so DMXs, of course, is only good for 512 channels. And so you'll see here that really quickly at literally 170 pixels, you've used your full universe without any other lights. So those are going to be some options. Um, you really got to know more about it to be able to answer this great. But if you want to dive deeper, like I mentioned at the top, I don't think you're a Learn Stage Lighting Labs member, um, but I would definitely check that out because then we could dive a little deeper. Um, I've worked with other people with similar products in the past, but it always kind of depends on what um, what exactly they've gotten, what the specifications are of it, and how it wants to see control. Uh, so now, Joyana wrote in from Indonesia and uh, actually wrote in and has a voice message for us, which is great. Um, for those of you who, who aren't aware, we uh, do have a voice message widget on learnstagelighting.com slash contact, and I would love to use it more. If you do have questions and you're going to write them into the show anyways, you know, speaking them allows us to break up um, my voice, my boring voice, and uh, then I'm not just talking the whole time we hear from others. So let's hear from uh, Joyata. Hello, David. I'm from Indonesia. Uh, I want to talk to you about how to build the DMX cable to USB. All right. And thank you, uh, Joyata, for being the first person to send in a voice question. I've had that widget up for a while, and I think it's super cool um, to be able to intersperse some voices in here of other people. And so, you know, hope other people do. But regardless, how do you make DMX to USB? So this is not something I cover um, a lot on my site, just because um, here in the US, at least, you can buy USB to DMX interfaces that are well built for not a lot of money. Um, You know, we're talking, you know, under, you know, like 150 bucks for a really nice one. There's cheaper ones out there if you look. But regardless, um, DMX is great because you can make a USB adapter. Um, Because DMX is a simple serial type protocol Um, that's not like breakfast, but like um, old printers and other technology. And so all that it takes is um, an adapter from USB, which is pretty simple because USB is a serial uh, interface as well. And because they're both the same type of interface, um, converters are pretty simple and pretty inexpensive. So I'm going to link to an article from a guy named Stephen Brules, who shows you on his blog, Stephen B., um, how to go ahead and build one of these for under $10 US. Excuse me. So you should be able to uh, follow that and be able to get exactly what you need. Now, Stephanie wrote in and said, Hello, David. 
I am working with a new crew at a local church. We have a camera director, um, and that's in quotes, that believes that bumping up the gain on the cameras is a good idea. I've been in production for 25 years and have never heard this before. Suppose it is so he can increase lighting. Was hoping to get your opinion on the subjects. Thank for any input uh, that you can provide. Okay, so let's talk about, let's, let's kick back to the basics of cameras and light, and then we're, I'm going to talk about gain um, kind of as a follow-up to that. So when it comes down to it, um, a camera, you know, you set a, a shutter speed for video that's usually like 30 frames or 25, and you set an aperture based on the lens that you have to be able to expose the camera shot so that everything looks correct. So that the darks aren't too dark and the lights aren't too light. Of course, I'm simplifying this a little, but that's the basics, right? And so sometimes, especially um, in darker spaces or if the camera's shooting really far or if you have uh, inexpensive lenses or an older camera, when you expose this to what you need to get, maybe you're at the minimum um, f-stop or aperture that you would want, and then, you know, maybe you're... Um, Maybe you've gone ahead and, you know, you just need, for whatever reason, you've exposed it how you need to expose it on the camera level and you don't have enough light. Well, then the best thing to do in that case is to increase the level of light on the stage, right? Or get the camera closer, get a better lens, something like that. Um, and the reason why is because that's going to give you the cleanest signal possible. Now, you've got a camera director here who wants to increase the gain, um, so he or she is obviously not getting enough light in the camera and they want to increase the gain. Now, what that does, it's like the ISO setting on, on a camera, um, on a still camera. What that does is it kind of artificially um, bumps up the brightness. It does it digitally. And sometimes this can give you, um, a lot of times this will give you some noise. Now, not always, okay? So I've worked on a lot of events. I've worked with cheap cameras, ancient cameras, new cameras, all kinds of cameras. And, you know, as we get newer and newer cameras, um, sometimes if on one camera, maybe it's shooting further, you need a little bit of gain, you can tweak that in and, and not see any visible difference. Uh, the key here is just, you know, that using gain on the camera is not necessarily a bad thing, but it's artificial. So at the end of the day, if you start to see some noise in your shot from it, you start to, you know, you get that up on a monitor that's that's a good size that you can really see what's going on. And if you compare that to with no gain and, and you're getting, you know, noise and and that doesn't look right, you know, obviously, then you want to not use that gain or back up off it. So if you're not going to use gain, um, so, you know, at the end of the day, you got to get the light level right and you got to balance um, what you're trying to do. You, you try to balance, you know, using gain, which might add some noise versus getting the camera closer, getting a new lens maybe, or getting more light. Um, and so that's going to be the balance all the time. Um, in an ideal world, of course, you want to use no gain, right? Any TV studio or any professional use um, is going to desire that at any point that they not use gain if at all possible because it's going to be a cleaner signal. Um, and so that's ultimately our goal. So I hope that helps. Hope that makes sense. Hope I didn't just talk myself in circles. But I think that that kind of gives you uh, an idea as to what that uh, can do for you and how, how you can help that. Awesome. Nick writes in and says, what do the different lens twos on, say, a source 4, like an ellipsoidal, 
which is 5 to 50 degrees 2 to the beam. Why would you want to use specific measurements for some things? All right, so getting down to basics, um, you know, the, the degree is simply the degree that light is shot out of that lens tube. So in your example of 5 uh, versus 50 degrees, 50 degrees is very wide and 5 degrees is very narrow. Or if a light is a certain distance away from, from whatever it's hitting, at 5 degrees, it might give you, say, a 5-foot circle. But at 50 degrees, it's going to give you a much wider circle. I'm not sitting in front of a calculator right now, so I can't tell you what that is. But that's basically the essence of it. It's just a lens, like a projector or a camera or something else. And so the narrower the angle that you have, um, the, you know, the, the tighter the, the light circle is going to be, um, the further it can generally throw, and the brighter it's going to be. And then as you get wider on that angle the light's going to, to get larger, the circle of light is. Um, as you throw further, it's going to become a very large circle of light. And then it's going to be less bright overall at each point of that circle because you're taking the same amount of light and you're spreading it out over more area. Um, pretty, you know, that's, that's pretty, pretty simple. So um, how do you choose what angle to use? Well, you, you want to look up a light beam calculator and, you know, do some simple math to see... Um, what lens you should use, or just compare, contrast, and guess. And so um, a lot of times, especially if you're new to lighting, if you've got some different lenses at your disposal, or maybe you've got, you mentioned 5 to 50, so you might have a zoom lens that can do um, variable degrees in between the two. And so if you put that thing at 19 degrees, say, which is a standard lens tube, and it's not quite wide enough, then jump up to the next lens, a 26, or zoom it out a little more. Um, if it's too wide, you know, try zooming it in a little. And, you know, that's a good way to find the right lens or else you can use a light beam calculator. Um, and I'll link to one in the show notes um, from the uh, stage lighting store that I really like a lot. It's just a, you know, free one you can use online, but this one's, this one's really good, really concise and, and geared towards our industry. All right, then Steven writes it and he says, Hi, David, I'm working on creating an even front wash. I watched your YouTube video on how to do it. It was really clear and the best explanation I've seen. Thanks. And that's actually a reminder that I need to redo that one because it is old. The quality is poor. The information's good, but the quality's poor. Uh, thank you. I have a follow-up. It really has to do with our sanctuary and something I've seen in a lot of churches. We have a peaked ceiling that the front truss bars are attached to. Um, so it's an A-frame style church. And so the lights are going to be at all different heights. In my diagram, I show lights uh, next to each other facing at 45 degrees to achieve the two points of lights that you mentioned that should be evenly spaced. In our case, there are about six ellipsoidal lights on each side of the room, and they all face inwards about 45 degrees. That is, on each side of the room, they face the same direction as opposed to crossing every two. Will this work, or should I reposition like in your diagram to get the even wash that I am looking for? Two, will I face any challenges since my lights are not at the same horizontal level, i.e. they go up the peak of the roof? So yes, Stephen, um, obviously, or you, you, um, you signed this, Steve. So Steve, um, obviously... You know, this is a challenge, but this is also um, a very typical style of church building here in the U.S. So it's something that I've seen a lot and something that I've worked with a lot. So it's a pretty simple answer for me. Um, so what I tend to do basically is, you know, as I mentioned in that video, I think um, 45 degrees up and over is like the ideal angle with, with two lights for each zone, one from each side. I'm about 45 degrees off. 
But when you've got this kind of building, um, typically it's not possible to hit that angle exactly. So here, here's what I suggest. Um, basically, um, when you start to get too steep of an angle downward, say about 50 degrees or so, that's when you start getting raccoon eyes on people, okay? You know, that's when uh, you, you get those shadows and things don't look good. So we want to avoid that at all costs. So with that in mind, um, I generally like to space the lights out in situations like this, you know, more towards the edges, towards the lower part of the bars, um, and, and still do the same kind of crisscrossing pattern. It's just more than being concerned about the 45 um, horizontally, I'm more concerned about the vertical. Because one thing that I've learned about light over the years is that while these 245s are the ideal and they are what works really well and, uh, you know, they get the job done, um, the vertical is more critical getting that right for a proper wash um, that looks right. You can actually go on the horizontal, and I've done this before on events with um, front projection where the screen's right behind the stage or, or rear projection too, uh, and you'll find that with lighting, even if on the horizontal, those lights are like, you know, 150 or 160 degrees apart. They're super wide. Um, as long as you get that vertical right at about 45 uh, degrees from the, the person on stage, it's going to look pretty good. In fact, I've done, you know, televised events like that where, you know, that was what we needed to do um, for the specific situations. And so um, basically... You know, as you start to move upward on that bar towards the center of the room, you just want to watch that you're not getting too steep because when you start to get too steep, you're going to get those raccoon eyes. And that's the point where, you know, OK, don't put any lights higher than this, you know, cheat them down, even if it's wider on the horizontal than um, than that 45 degrees. It's, it's usually going to be OK. Of course, as always with lighting, it's not an exact science. It is an art. So experiment, see what works. But that's a good first step is to say, hey, it's better to go wider than it is to be too steep. Um, because when you get too steep, that's when things start to get ugly. Awesome. So Katie writes in um, and says, what can I should, what can I should when I want to connect DMX and RDM controller? Okay. So this person, again, not a native English speaker, but that's great. I love that there's people from all around the world listening to our show. Um, so, Let's talk about DMX and RDM. Um, how do you work with it? So for those of you who aren't familiar, we'll link to an article on Learning Stage Lighting 2 that uh, talks about what is RDM. Um, but RDM is basically an addition, an add-on to basic DMX that allows us to hear things back from our lights. Now, not every light is RDM compatible. Um, most of the time, it's lights that are newer and, um, and you know, more professional. Um, less expensive lights generally don't have RDM because it costs more to include it. And so our lights will talk back um, down the DMX line to our console use it with such things like the amount of hours on the lamp, if it's a, a discharge lamp type fixture, uh, the temperature of the sensors, if it's an LED fixture, the profile, the, the channel mode that the light is set at, um, the DMX address, and any other things basically that... If you were on the back of the light, working with the menu, working with the buttons, usually most of those settings that you can get in a menu, you can access via RDM, at least when a manufacturer does a good job of implementing it, which most of them uh, do. And so the question becomes, how do I connect uh, to RDM with a console? Um, 
some lighting consoles are going to include this um, ability within. For example, Grand MA now does. Of course, my favorite professional lighting console, Onyx, does and has for a long time. Um, not always on the PC version. There's some stipulations there, as with specific hardware. Um, but on the consoles, they they support RDM, and it is wonderful. Uh, but then if you don't have a console that supports RDM, then there are programs that you can use to jump on the DMX network um, if you're using, you know, ArtNet or SACN nodes. And you can jump on the network, and um, I think it's only with ArtNet, and be able to uh, talk to items, units that are on there. For example, um, there's one called DMX Workshop, um, and I think on that article about RDM, I, I feature that, and I feature some other apps too that um, allow you to use RDM. So the, the DMX Workshop software, is it's kind of rudimentary, but it's free, and it allows you to see what lights are connected and see all the RDM stuff and change information about them. Um, there's another device called the DMX Cat from City Theatrical. I've got one, and it's a cool unit that allows you to troubleshoot DMX signal um, and you're able to plug that into a DMX line, see all the RDM fixtures, and work with them. Um, it's a great little tool. And so, yeah, that's basically how you do it. Um, at this point, it's not in every console or software, but um, it's getting there. You know, it's becoming more popular, and um, it is, you know, one of those things that we're going to see more and more into the future, which is so cool because then, um, you know, lights are going to be able to work with it. Like, for example, actually, there's one, the Camsys Quick Q and uh, the ETC. Um, oh, what are they called? Not the color. Yeah, they are the color source consoles, I think they're called. Um, they have the ability to automatically patch lights, um, set the DMX addresses automatically if certain lights are found via RDM. So that's a cool feature. Um, doesn't always do what you want it to and isn't always as valuable as, as some people think it is in my opinion, but um, we're not going to type into that right now. Actually, let's let's dive into that a little. Um, so one of the features to go on a rabbit trail that RDM can do is automatic patching, right? So you connect your lighting console. It looks out there and it finds all the RDM fixtures because it's not looking based on DMX address. It's looking by fixture ID or basically the way I understand it, basically by the serial number. And then your console could, in theory, go ahead and assign DMX addresses for all your lights. How cool is that, right? You plug in, it assigns all the addresses, you're good to go. Um, there's a few problems with this. The first, of course, is if they're not your lights, then somebody might be really mad later if they try to plug back in and they don't have an RDM device, and then you've changed all the addresses and now they're screwed. Um, you know, they, they, they got to go get out a ladder, get on a lift to change the stuff. The lights not, might, might not be accessible, etc. So that's one reason why it's not a good idea. Um, you know, the other is, well, are they all in the right mode that you want? Because if they're not, then you might patch a bunch of lights in the completely wrong mode and then have a frustrating time controlling them. Um, what about how the console assigns them to fixture numbers? Are you going to be able to find the lights and is it going to be in an intuitive order for how you program things. Um, and then the last reason why I, I'm not a big fan of auto-patching via RDM is that it doesn't even save you that much time. Like, people that are selling these consoles, they put that as a big marketing point, like, oh, we can auto-address the lights. But here's the thing. Like, even on, you know, a good-sized rig, you know, multiple universes, um, on, a, on a typical kind of corporate show that I do, you know, that could be, you know, three, four universes or more. 
it really doesn't take that long to just simply address the lights when you're setting up, right? You've got to plug in that light anyways. You got to give it power. You got to give it DMX. It takes like a second longer to do the address. Or somebody in the warehouse, you know, in, in the production company world can just go through real quick and literally, you know, 30 cents per, seconds per light, um, they can go and they can set that address maybe a minute per light. And you can do a bunch of lights quick, label them, and then you know exactly what they are, what the address is supposed to be. Um, and so it's like, it's like when people are selling this feature, and I've seen this a lot, they go and they're like, oh my goodness, we can auto patch via RDM. This is the best thing ever. But a lot of times, um, you're not even going to do it that often, right? Like if you're a production company, sure, you might readdress everything every single show. But as I noted, that only takes a few minutes. And usually you have labor around who you can hand a sheet of names or you know numbers and, and they'll go address your lights and do it pretty quick. They need something to do anyways. Um, and if you're not in live production, um, maybe you run your own company, right? Or you do lighting for bands. I, I talk to a lot of people that do this kind of thing. They're a DJ company, you know, they light for bands, whatever. Then, you know, set the addresses once. And then you never have to set them again because you can just keep them exactly the same, right? If it's just you always using the lights. Um, or even worse, if you're an installation, okay, if you do installs and, you know, you're installing a console for an installation, then you're saving yourself the addressing, you know, the task of addressing one time, Right. So this is literally just a one-time thing where, you know, it might take you half an hour to address these lights and then that console is going to be installed for five to 10 years, you know, maybe in a church or some other kind of venue. So how much time did it save you half an hour to get this feature in? You know, I would rather, rather than focus on that feature and buy a console because it has it, I would rather you buy exactly the right console for you, your needs that would save you time in programming for the next 10 years. Um, so that's that's my beef. That is my little, um, you know, rabbit trail there. Because, you know, the last thing is, is it's like, I don't want you to, um, to go buy something just based off of a cool feature that, you know, a marketing department, sure, is going to put a lot of money towards is going to say, hey, you should pay attention to this. This is a big deal. When really, is it really that big of a deal? Like, is it really something that's going to save you that much time over the long run? Or is it something that might be a little, you know, a little less crucial and a little simpler? Uh, I, you know, evaluate it for your own needs. But that's my thought with RDM. Um, it's a great feature. I love it on the Onyx consoles because especially in a permanent install, you can go in there and you can look at how many hours are on the lamps. Um, you can read error messages off of lights, etc. But I think for the vast majority of people, um, the whole auto patching feature, I don't think is that big of a deal. And I don't think is something that is really going to make a huge difference to you and really going to make you go, wow, that feature just, you know, made my life amazing. Um, and so that that's kind of my point there is like, you know, I just, I, I want you to choose wisely. So anyways, off my soapbox, the last question here is from Ojeka. Um, how do I select one color of light? Well, it's really going to depend, um, you know, on a lot of things. I'm not sure whether you're asking here um, about selecting a color of light in the context of an artistic discussion. How do I choose a color to go with the song? 
Um, we'll we'll link to my show, um, How to Run Lights to Music. Um, that kind of it's a a YouTube video that that is very popular um, on my channel. That um, How do I Run Lighting Live to Music? It's called, and, and it walks you through some of those discussion steps. Um, but you know, maybe you're talking about on a console. Uh, maybe you've got color mixing. Maybe you've got um, a color picker. I'm not really sure. And so um, definitely going to need some more info from you if you do write back. Uh, and, you know, we, we, we could discuss how to how to choose that. But at the end of the day, um, there's a lot of factors that go into choosing a color of light and choosing the right color. I mean, it, it really comes down to, okay, what lights do you have? What console do you have? What are you trying to accomplish? And then we'll dive deeper into that. Uh, if you do follow up via email, um, that's cool. If not, you know, that's great too. Um, but in closing, uh, show notes, guys, for this episode are at learnstagelightning.com slash 073. We've done 73 of these already. And um, guys, if you have been listening, if you've been enjoying these shows, I would really appreciate it if you could jump in on Patreon and help me to fund this show. So it just, you know, just if we just get a few of you guys to pitch up and then we get, you know, $150 a month, then I'll continue doing four shows a month. Um, and I got to thank Taz for being a supporter there. And I can't wait to see more of you there because it's just a really great way. I mean, if you've been consuming this stuff literally for free, then, you know, I'm not trying to be a guilt trip here, but at the same time, like, um, you know, you've gotten information that's helped you and you've gotten stuff that's saved you time, saved you frustration, and you've literally paid nothing for it. Um, and that's fine. But at the same time, realize I want to continue to put out, you know, tons of great information. And I can't do it without the community's input. I really can't. Um, I, I've seen, like I've mentioned previous in in kind of pitches for my Patreon as I've talked through this process here on the podcast, um, then that, um, you know... I see a lot of businesses and I've seen this happen online. You know, they have something paid like my line stage lighting labs. They have courses. And once that becomes pretty successful, they have to focus all their time there because they've got to work with those people. And I would love for the long-term future, you know, that's been successful. It's been good. It, it, um, you know, is something that continues to grow and become a bigger piece of the pie for me. But you know, I still go out there and I still do shows to, you know, to, to, to make sure I feed the family. And that's great. Um, but I'm just thinking, you know, we can do this Patreon thing. If I get, you know, a few more of you guys in there, then, and gals, um, thank you, Taz, um, for supporting. Then we can have, you know, this podcast and the YouTube videos totally sponsored by the community. And I continue can continue to put out more and higher quality stuff for you. So, if that sounds good, head over to the Patreon, learnstagelighting.com slash Patreon. Of course, notes, um, show notes will have that link as well. And I will see you guys next week. Um, we are going to have a great interview with a really good friend of mine, Seth Shoemaker. You may not know him, but you're going to get to after this episode. I learned some things that I didn't know as well um, during that interview, and I'm going to go ahead, edit that, and get that out to you next week. I hope you have a great day and create some great lighting this week. See you.